According to drugabuse.gov, 2018 data shows that every day, 128 people in the United States die after do overdosing on opiates. The misuse of an addiction to opiates, including prescription pain relievers, heroin, and synthetic opiates such as fentanyl, is a serious national crisis that affects public health as well as social and economic welfare. Here to talk about this today is Alexis Place, founder and executive director of Truth Farm, a national advocacy 501c3 nonprofit organization who is working to raise awareness and reduce the stigma associated with substance use disorders and advocating for policy change to improve treatment options including the legalization of cannabis. Alexis, thanks so much for joining me today. And thank you so much for having me. It's good to see I'm you again. To be here. You as well. Thank you. Now, I have so many questions that I want to ask you, but first and foremost, how did we get to the point of a national opiate crisis? How do you yeah, get here? So it's, yeah, it's funny because um, the other day someone said it was, uh, they just made this blanket statement to me that the reason why we had an opioid uh, crisis was because of the last financial crisis. And that could be a little bit true for some people, but what I like to say about the opioid uh, epidemic and crisis is that really it was a perfect storm. So we had a situation uh, where we had an economic decline. Uh, we also have a lot of death and despair in our country. There's a lot of uh, scientific uh, studies out there about uh, the feelings of death and despair for uh, communities. And then we had uh, the pharmaceutical industry uh, step in and use some really unscrupulous practices in terms of how they were marketing medicines, which happens every single day um, still. Uh, our, uh, our healthcare in the United States, as you know, is a profit-based system. As soon as we mix money with healthcare uh, and profits, profits and the desire to have profits is always going to win. And so we allowed the pharmaceutical industry to use their desires uh, to have profits to control the presentation of information. And so they were able to spin studies. What they did was they funded studies at universities and things like that. They were, they were able to spin that information to their benefit. Um, and originally, the very first thing when um, OxyContin came on the market in 2006, what they were able to do was use a story that was like just a basic journalism story, no scientific study, that said um, few people become addicted when they use OxyContin as prescribed. Uh, they use that as their basis to market OxyContin broad scale. They also use their financial lobbying powers to lobby with uh, an organization called JACO, which is uh, the Joint Commission for something. Um, it oversees hospitals uh, across the nation and rates them and decides what their payment structure will be based on how well they're performing. And they were able to get pain added as the fifth vital sign in determining uh, how a person should be cared for in hospitals. <laughs> so the culmination of those things all brought together what I like to believe is the perfect storm which led to the opioid epidemic that we have uh, still today. It's been nine years since the uh, CDC declared it an epidemic. Yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of crazy. We're in the midst of a global pandemic while we're also simultaneously in this nine-year, you know, epidemic in our country. And, you know, I remember the first time I heard you speak, and I think it's safe to say that most, some of the best activists in the world always 
have a story that really ties them to their industry and to their cause. And I remember hearing you speak for the first time in Binghamton and your story just resonated with me as a, um, as well as I'm sure it does with many, many other people that hear you speak. Would you mind kind of diving into your story of what really got you into this space? Yeah, I don't mind at all. Um, so uh, my, I lost my oldest son, uh, Jeff, to a heroin overdose in August of 2014. And of course, that's the um, fastest, easiest way to tell the story. <laughs> the um, longer, sadder story, but it's, you know, I, I tell people all the time, my story is really no different than the hundreds of stories that I've heard from other families. Um, but Jeff was an incredible kid. He was my oldest son. Um, he was an athlete. He was extremely disciplined. He played uh, football and he wrestled. And if any, anybody's familiar with that scenario, you know, you put on weight for football and then you take weight off for wrestling. And I was always so impressed with his uh, willpower and drive to do types of things like that. Like just, he was such a, such a driven athlete. He was charismatic, outgoing, uh, he was always sticking up for the underdog, just a wonderful kid. His teachers loved him. He was popular. He was a great kid. Um, in his junior year of high school, he had um, a major knee uh, injury during a football, the first football game of the season, actually. And he was so determined to be able to wrestle that year, even after a major knee surgery he just worked so hard to be able to wrestle that year. But one of the ways that he did that to manage his pain was with Oxycontin. And at that time, this was 2003, we didn't know anything about opioids being addictive. Um, I didn't know anything about the risk of um, opioids. No one talked, the doctor didn't talk to us about that. I didn't even know that they could be used to get high. Like I just had no understanding of opioids at all. And I think back to that time and how, like, you know, I kind of feel in a way I contributed even to Jeff's path because if he complained about his pain, I would say, did you take a pill? Remember the doctor said to stay on schedule with your pills. So um, little did I know he became addicted to those pills. I didn't know um, until it was 2011. So seven years later, he was addicted the entire time and his uh, addiction had progressed to heroin use, IV heroin use. I didn't know that um, because he graduated high school. He graduated college. He had his own job. He had his own apartment. So I thought that he was doing fine. Um, and in 2011, he was arrested uh, for burglarizing houses and still working a full-time job. And I, I, to this day, every time I say that out loud, it brings me to tears because it was just so um, startling and mind-blowing. And my, when I met with the district attorney, the uh, public defender is when he explained to me that Jeff was addicted to heroin. Um, and then our lives were, you know, a roller coaster for the next four years, uh, trying to figure out how to get him help. And that was very difficult to do. Um, and then ultimately he lost his life, uh, to heroin. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. I can't even Thank imagine you. the nightmare that that was, I mean, and, and the sad thing is that 
there's a lot of store, very similar stories across this country and across the state of parents and siblings and aunts and uncles who have very similar stories. And you know, the question is, why is this still happening? You know? Yeah, think, right. You know, it's crazy. You mentioned, you know, back in 2003, who would have known, you know, I would have thought, you know, Oxycontin and opiates were just like Advil or, you know, Tylenol. And now with organizations like Truth Farm coming to the forefront and really creating awareness to this huge issue sheds a lot of light on a very huge systemic problem that continues to plague our country and our state. So, you know, what is Truth Farm and, and what is your mission behind Truth Farm? So, um, so part of our story and part of what happened while Jeff was addicted and then um, even after his, after I lost him, within hours of losing him, we, you know, became very well versed in understanding the stigma um, towards people who suffer from addiction. I was not um, ashamed of Jeff in any way whatsoever, even when he was in active addiction um, and even losing him to an overdose. I was not ashamed of him, but the shame that the community tried to put on him and um, his loss was really, that was so, it was a different type of pain and a, it's something that's hard to even describe, but I, I just felt like people were trying to devalue his life. And so when I started Truth Farm, really it was uh, initially to try to just raise awareness and, and try to, to try to reduce the stigma so that people understood, regardless of what people face or how they become addicted or what their path was or the things that they did, um, it's not the person they were <laughs> originally and they, their lives had value. Um, and we, we as a society tend to really celebrate recovery and celebrate people who don't use substances, but the people who are in the middle, um, it's like their lives had, have literally no value, um, while they're actively addicted. We only reassign value when they become, when they're in recovery, uh, which is really disturbing. So the goal of Truth Farm was to raise awareness and reduce stigma. And I quickly understood through that work that, uh, reducing stigma comes with education. So uh, we provide a lot of education. And then I also understood very quickly, the only way that we're going to change things is through advocacy and changing policies and changing laws. Um, I'm an engineer by trade. That's what I did for 27 years before I started Truth Farm. Um, so like engineers don't want to keep fixing problems. Engineers want to get to the root of the problem. <laughs> and so that's what um, I'm all about. And that's what Truth Farm is all about, getting to the root of the problem and, and fixing it so that we don't have to keep picking up the pieces all the time. Now, you guys, you know, something that's really been introduced to me recently is the the notion of harm reduction, right? Kind of compared to, you know, the other approach of abstinence, you know, an all or nothing approach. So I guess yeah. uh, for our audience, can you explain what harm reduction means? Yeah, so um, harm reduction is basically, uh, you know, to put it in the simplest terms, it's anything that you do to reduce harm. And so if we think of it in ways like just general society, we, we take a harm reduction approach to a lot of things. Like, so with the coronavirus, we're wearing face masks because we're looking to reduce the chance of harm or the, the reduced risk. Same thing when we talk about harm reduction in terms of addiction and substance use, uh, the concept is anything that we can do to reduce the risk or harms of substance use, um, that is called harm reduction. So we're a harm reduction based organization. 
we believe that people, as I mentioned just now, they have people have their lives have value the entire time, even while they're actively using substances. Our goal is to find ways and to educate them in ways that we can reduce the harms of their substance use or reduce the risks of either addiction or fatalities. Um, and so it's not about judging people. It's not about creating a final measure of never using substances. It's about saying, well, if you are using, let's talk about ways that we can reduce the risks and harms for you. And I think a big part of that uh, education approach is learning how to change the language at which, you know, we, we address things. You know, I know in cannabis, you know, words like marijuana or black market, you know, those are yes. words that I've, you know, erased from my lexicon because they're inherently racist, right? We yeah. know what the war on drugs did, you know, targeting communities of color over the, over the last 80 years. So, you know, words like marijuana and black market as activists, we choose to no longer use and change, you know, cannabis or... Uh, um, you know, so I remember when we met in Binghamton at the incubator, you had really kind of opened my eyes to some new language arounding uh, your field. Can you kind of share with us some of the, the language that you use that you teach people um, in this in the substance use space? Yeah, I would love to. Um, it's one of my favorite topics. So, and it's, again, it's all about reducing stigma. So um, one of the words that, uh, there's easy words that we have gotten rid of that most people understand, like calling somebody a junkie or a druggie. Um, immediately, everyone knows that, that that's really derogatory. So insulting. Um, yeah, so insulting. Um, a word that's still commonly used that people don't, a lot of people don't realize is a derogatory term is addict. Mm -hmm. So addict is actually a slang term. It's not medical, it's not clinical. Um, and it's also labeling a person as if that's their only identity. So we always want to try to avoid using words that create your, your sole identity. So like if you had cancer and I called you cancer, yeah. That would be a pretty horrific statement. And so we never uh, refer to people as addicts. We, will, we would say a person, so if a person truly suffers from substance use disorder, we would say a person who suffers from substance use disorder um, or a person who suffers from problematic substance use. Because what we also want to start to delineate, uh, which is really important also when we talk about the cannabis industry, um, there are people who can use substances in a healthy way and never develop a problem, never develop uh, a substance use disorder, an addiction or problematic substance use. And then there's people who, for whatever reason, genetics, um, you know, life situation, uh, mental health, their substance use could lead to a substance use disorder or problematic substance use. So we like to use those words to really delineate and help people understand that there is a difference um, in those things. So th those are some of the words that we have uh, chosen. We also tend to avoid using the word drug um, just because drug has like kind of immediately you think of it, it's more of an illegal type substance when we know that people use a range of substances could be legal or illegal uh, that could become problematic for them. So we've kind of eliminated the, the term drug. We just tend to say substance more frequently um, than drug. 
but a lot of people won't say it's a derogatory term. It's just, we've decided to change that. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's, you know, ca- caffeine is a drug and no one is going to Starbucks in the morning to get their drugs or Dunkin' Donuts right. to get their drugs. But all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> cannabis or opiates or all these other, you know, illicit substances all of a sudden have this negative connotation. So it's, yeah. uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. I, I, I really appreciate the language change. Uh, like I said, I, I was, ki- you know, kind of uh, uneducated in, in that language. And you really kind of brought it to my attention at the at the incubator down in Binghamton. And uh, since then, it's really stuck with me. And I've tried to kind of push that narrative. If I hear, you know, drug abuse or an addict or something, it just sounds so nasty. You know, I even had a little bit of hesitation pulling data from drugabuse.gov. I was like, oh, this is <laughs> fucking offensive. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, yeah, yeah. So I know a lot of you guys do a lot of policy work. You know, that's how we we cross paths uh, in Albany. Mm-hmm. Um, my question is, you know, in terms of, uh, of advocacy and policy change, what are some ways to improve che- uh, treatment options for those struggling with substance use disorders? So uh, one of the things that we need to do is simply make uh, substance use uh, treatment readily available. So currently it just isn't. And it's also, I mean, it's driven by, economics. Uh, You know, I hear from families who say, oh my goodness, I spent $120,000 of my retirement on my son's addiction treatment. And while I think, wow, that's startling, then I think about all the families that I know who didn't have insurance and didn't have money and didn't have savings to pay for addiction treatment. And so again, we need to eliminate money from the equation when we talk about providing people care. If they need help and it's medical help, they need to just be able to obtain that. So we need um, access to treatment to be available across the board. We also need to stop allowing um, treatment to be driven by this goal of total abstinence. So most addiction treatment providers in the United States currently follow a model that's not harm reduction based. They follow what's called a total abstinence uh, based treatment protocol. So, you know, the way I try to put it to people to help them understand, it's like if I went to my doctor and said, um, you know, I need to do something about my weight. It's out of control and my eating is out of control and I'm 50 pounds overweight and I need some help. And my doctor said, welcome to treatment. Stop From here on out, you will not consume one single unhealthy item. Such a good point. <laughs> and then on top of it, imagine, so in addiction treatment, that's literally the way it is. They say, welcome to treatment. From here on out, you're not going to use not only the substance that's killing you, let's say it's heroin, not only heroin, but you can't use any substance now. A lot of times even caffeine is on the list. So give up cigarettes in New York state cigarettes is even you can't, if you're, if you're in an inpatient treatment program in New York state, you can't even smoke cigarettes outside of the facility. Cannot do it in New York state. That's so bizarre. Literally. Yeah. And providers are able to kick people out of treatment for doing those things. So I, I literally know families, like I know a, a family personally whose son was kicked out of treatment because he got caught smoking a cigarette. He was in the supportive living environment. He got caught smoking a cigarette. He was kicked out of treatment and he died from a heroin overdose that night. So we, we kick people out of treatment for using a substance 
that they're in treatment for. Um, so imagine if I, you know, I go to my doctor and I say I need help with my weight and he says, welcome to treatment. You are no longer allowed to ever consume anything unhealthy for you. And if you do, I'm going to kick you out of this program. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, we have to start reverse, you know, changing the way we look at, at substance abuse less as a criminal criminality and more as a public health issue. You know, the, I that's think right. that's so crazy that you, you screw up once and they throw you out of treatment. I mean, I have a really good friend who uh, used to stuff, suffer with alcohol abuse and had gotten a few DWIs and, you know, still struggles and relapses from time to time and has expressed to me over and over and over. If all I could do was have a joint at the end of the day, my cravings would be gone. I'd feel healthier, but I'm not allowed to because right. my PO will, you know, write me up or put me back in jail or, you know, whatever. It's like, this is huge hassle. And it's like, yep. you know, it kind of goes to the question. like, one of the biggest challenges I've faced as an activist over the years is people saying, well, we're already in the midst of a, a you know, an opiate and a drug crisis. Why legalize another drug and introduce it in the mix? You know, what, what would you tell someone that, that lays on that argument? Cause I'm sure you've heard the same thing in your crusade. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so first of all, what we know is that prohibition is the problem, um, not allowing uh, access to a safe supply of a substance creates, uh, you know, a, a more dangerous market. So the more we make something unattainable and illegal, the, the, the more dangerous the substance gets, the more dangerous the trade of the substance gets, uh, and the more risky uh, behaviors that are associated with obtaining the substance. So, so anything that's prohibited is a problem. Um, so that's the first thing that I would say uh, related to that. And, you know, um, yeah, I lost my train of thought on that, but but really, the prohibition is absolutely the problem. Um, in terms of cannabis, like it's just not a gateway drug. Um, it's not a gateway. It's proven over and over and over again. It's not a gateway. Uh, we have T-shirts that um, say um, "Greed, corporate greed was the gateway drug because it's really what led to the opioid epidemic has nothing to do with marijuana. It had to do with corporate greed. That was the gateway drug, uh, not ca not cannabis. Yeah, it's funny. It's, it's uh, you know, when we went through that that vape crisis where, you know, people were dropping dead and ended up in the hospital for these lung infections that were attributed to illicit market vaporizers. You know, it's that's anything right. that's made in the illicit market. There's no regulation. There's no compliance. There's no safety, no nothing. So people were using, you know, low grade fillers to cut these with vitamin E acetate. And lo and behold, you had these people with essentially like lipid based pneumonia in their lungs and dying. Right. And our argument was, well, you ever go to Wegmans or a grocery store and open up a beer and drop dead? No, because there's safety and compliance standards that go with legal products. Same goes with cannabis. I was like, I remember myself, uh, I was t testifying in front of the, uh, at a joint budget hearing and asking like the, the fact that we even have to up here and like explain to these, you know, supposed to be really intelligent people that when products are in the illicit market, that there's going to be safety issues. It's like, what a waste of time. Do I really have to get up there and convey that like in illicit market products are going to be inherently more dangerous? Like it seems like a huge waste of time, but you know, I guess that's just, you know, beating a dead horse is half the battle with advocacy. So, you right. Know, yeah, I, you want to say to them, you guys know this, right? <laughs> like, do I have to say this? Like, is this new news to you? I hope not.
but you know, this is, this is a cannabis podcast, obviously, and we've touched on a little bit, but you know, where does cannabis fit into this, this crusade of yours into this harm reduction approach to really mitigating and hopefully, you know, eventually ending the opiate crisis? How does cannabis fit into this? Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm a fierce advocate for uh, cannabis legalization um, for a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, I have a personal reason, uh, you know, to, to advocate for legalization because I'm a consumer. So, um, you know, I, I want a good market to be able to buy a safe and reliable product. Um, this coronavirus is a great example of like I just re I've been going to Ma Massachusetts to buy my cannabis products for you know the past couple of years and now or however long they've been legal and now I just recently had to like reach out to my network and figure out how to buy illicit cannabis you know and like it's and I and then I'm asking them like oh what strain is it and they're acting like I'm talking cross-eyed because it's you green know, That's, yeah, it's, it's like, green it's in a baggie like just buy it lady <laughs> like it's a real frustrating situation. So, um, so that's my personal reason. But um, in terms of the opioid epidemic, we support so many people who are in active recovery. And just like your friend who was talking about the alcohol situation, of one of the most common uh, mental health issues related to um, stopping use of opioids is anxiety. Um, depression and inability to sleep. Certain strains of cannabis can help with each one of those uh, in a very healthy, safe way for individuals. Much safer than if I take a person who has uh, been able to uh, get off of heroin and they're having anxiety issues, if we give them benzodiazepines, <laughs> we're frequently walking them right back into a path of dangerous pharmaceuticals that are known to be typically addictive um, and can become problematic for some people. You know, some people can take benzodiazepines safely. A lot of people can't. And so it's not a safe option for a lot of people who are addicted to opioids where marijuana, or I shouldn't say marijuana, cannabis is That's a much, <laughs> it's so hard to get rid of those habits, yeah. but it's a, it's a much safer uh, path for a lot of people to consume cannabis uh, than to consume from another pharmaceutical. And quite frankly, a lot of people who ask us about what they can do about their anxiety when we talk about mental health meds, they'll say they're terrified, like they just don't want to go down that path again. And so why can't we provide them with a safe alternative to that? Yeah, you make a good point. And, you know, a, a few years ago, I had actually gotten myself in a little bit of a, a, a dark place. You know, I had, you know, done what anybody else could do. I was, uh, was having issues with ADHD. So I went to the doctor thinking I was broken and I got, you know, some Adderall. And found out, you know, I wasn't really, I was having, I was now able to concentrate, but I wasn't able to fall asleep. So in came the trazodone. So now I could stay awake. Now I could fall asleep inorganically, but now I just started feeling la like blah. So my doctor put me on Zoloft and pretty soon I couldn't feel anything at all. 
You know, I mm. was, you know, I built my career and my, my whole life was about, you know, being empathetic and building relationships with people. And I didn't care about anything. I hadn't, I had not, I felt nothing. And it came to yeah. a point where, you know, I was, didn't even want to wake up in the morning and I had knew that it was, uh, it was time to make a change. And, you know, I had always been a cannabis user. I had never looked at it as a, as a medical agent, um, but start, you know, started combining, intelligently combining CBD products with smokable cannabis products. And one by one, these medications started to disappear and I thought wow for me I thought I was uh, was helpless and un unhelpable and unfixable imagine what the whole world you know a lot of these people that have similar sort even worse you know could do yes. with, with, with having access to either medical cannabis or adult use cannabis it's such a no-brainer at this point and you just can't help to think that you know the the reason we're getting so much you know big dollar lobbying pushback is because there's a lot of corporate interests that are going to see a huge bottom line hit when people start going to cannabis instead of booze instead of alcohol instead of opiates you know th that's the only reason the research is there Anybody that says, oh, we don't have enough research, use Google or PubMed, and there will be enough research for you to sift through for the next five fucking years. So I don't want to hear that there's not enough research. So the only reasonable and rational thing that I could possibly think of that we're still fighting tooth and nail for something that's so obvious is because there's a lot of big, greedy players that have a lot to lose when this industry get, gets right. legal. It's the only thing that it's makes so sense. true. Yeah, it's so true. And your story really gave me chills. Um, it is, you described it so well in such a powerful way. Um, so I really appreciate you, you know, sharing that. That is that it, those are the types of stories that we hear so frequently um, that that pharmaceutical path. You know, they talk about the pharmaceutical industry isn't into cures. They they're into creating customers, lifelong customers. And that's you know, that's the path they were trying to put you on and so many others. And, you know, I don't blame my doctor at all. He's he's a nice guy and I, I have no issues. And I did what any other person would do when they think that they're broken. But, you know, we talk about this notion of full spectrum cannabis and full spectrum medicine, you know, full spectrum medicine does exist in Western medicine. That's what happens when people are taking five, six, 10 pills at a time. Oh, you know, here's your, you know, your pain pill. Oh, that's going to cause constipation. Here's your constipation pill. Here's your anxiety <laughs> pill. And before you know, you're spending a thousand dollars a month taking five, 10 pills a day and you're hooked for life. That's really profitable. And unfortunately, pharmaceutical companies love profits way more than they do people. And it's a damn shame. And I hope that that's cannabis right. and organizations like Truth Farm can start to pull the bricks under their foundation and one by one we can, you know, start to build a better future with, with healthier people and a lot, you know, get rid of this crisis because it's catastrophic and it's tragic and nobody should have to, 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 to bury their loved ones because they got addicted. It's just terrible. And it may get, I get choked up thinking about it, but I really appreciate you coming on here. I always love listening to you speak. I love following you on social media. You have uh, a, a, quite the personality. I love your vocal <laughs> and quite frankly, you don't give a fuck. And I love that about you. <laughs> Thank so, you. So my question is, where can people, how can people get a hold of you? Where can they find you? Thank you so much uh, for all of that. So we are um, so easy to find. Uh, the only challenge you might have is if you accidentally Google Truth Farm with an F, because uh, it's, it's not an actual farm where the animals are. Um, but it's Truth Farm, P-H-A-R-M. Um, and the goal of that was to tell the truth about the pharmaceutical industry. So that's where our name came from. Um, and we, you can find us, uh, we have a website, we're on social media, uh, you could Google my name and you can even find my phone number certainly. So yeah, people can find us very easily. We're on 
Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, all is Truth Farm. I will say that it's amazing. Social media has revolutionized politics and activism, and it's amazing what oh, yes. you can do when you have a powerful message and not even a huge following, just a loyal, quality following. You know, you can really make quite the impact. And I, I follow you guys very closely. You do a lot of great work, and I'm just so thankful to have met you. And I'm glad that we cross paths, and uh, glad to be in the same activism corner. This is gonna, it's going to take a, an army to to get this past, and uh, I'm glad we're in the same corner. So thank you same. so much for coming on the show today i hope we can have another conversation in the future and uh keep fighting the good fight you're awesome thank you so much i appreciate it so much that means a lot to me and same i'd love to come back and and we'll be right there with you fighting for this because it's got to happen thank you thank you so much and everybody this has been another episode of steve's cannabis show thank you so much for tuning in i hope everybody's safe staying safe and healthy during the quarantine we'll see you next week